0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando.
1: This morning's scripture reading is the book of Exodus chapter 16. It is a long reading once again, so if you feel the need to sit, please feel welcome to. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they brought in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded, gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day... was like wafers made with honey. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God.
0: Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, let me tell you the big idea we're learning right now as we journey through this book of Exodus together. We're, we're learning that the New Testament looks at the Israelites' uh, wilderness experience as the paradigm and the picture and the pattern for what Christian life is like. Uh, in the world. The Israelites, we, like the Israelites, uh, were in, let me say that differently, let me see if I can say that better. Like the Israelites, we're out, but we're not yet in. Like the Israelites, we're out of slavery. We've been delivered from darkness. We've been given new life. But just like the Israelites in the wilderness, we're not yet in the ultimate destination. We haven't arrived yet at the promised land. And we're learning that as God leads us uh, through the wilderness of this age, His primary goal is not our convenience, nor our comfort, nor even our pleasure. His number one goal is our growth in trusting Him and in looking to Him for life more and more. Further, I introduced uh, the concept last week that God grows us by testing us. And again, ultimately, the tests are not about passing or failing. Uh, The tests are about revealing where we are in the journey, where we are in our relationship with. With God. So in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, the fifth book of the Old Testament. Moses is the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. And at the end, he's reflecting on God's leading of the Israelites through the wilderness. He's reflecting on God's testing of his people. He, he calls all 40 years a test. And he says this, remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Testing you to know or to reveal what was in your heart. So last week, we studied the first type of tests that God uses in our lives. Sometimes, God tests us by leading us on a path that lacks the resources we need to thrive. It could be water, food, clothing, friendship, money, etc. And in that test, God reveals whether or not we trust him by how we respond. If, at our core, we think life is found in circumstances, we will anxiously grumble when we lack. If at the core, though, we think life is found in God and in our relationship with Him, uh, we, when we lack, will go to Him not as the one who can give us what we need, but will go to Him as the one we need. So when we lack, God reveals what's going on in our hearts. So again, you can see in our story yet again, God leads his people into this first type of test. Verse 1, he takes them from Elam. So remember, that's a little taste of paradise. And he leads them into the wilderness, into a place where there is no food. And Moses mentions their failure. Okay, they grumbled. He says nine times in ten verses, they grumbled against the Lord. They blew it again. But this story also introduces a second type of test that God will use in revealing and growing his people. Not only does God test us by taking us through seasons of poverty, but God also sometimes tests us by giving us access to abundance. The Bible actually says that it's a more severe test when you have access to abundance than when you don't have what you need. And the test is not so much how they will handle the abundance. The test is this. Will they obey his clear teaching, his obvious laws on how to handle the context of abundance? Look again at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. So this this, this morning's sermon is all about God's tests Related to material abundance. We're going to think about it this way. It's a longer text. It's a little longer sermon. uh, Four points. The rules of this test. A rabbit trail from this test. What failing the test reveals in us. And the results of failing the test. So first, the rules of this test. Again, according to verse 4. The test is whether or not the Israelites will obey God's clear laws. His rules them about the abundance that he's going to give them before he ever gives them the abundance. In summary, there are four laws uh, for handling abundance. Gather daily, live in community, no leftovers, Sabbath on the seventh day. Verse four, God says to Moses, look, I'm about to rain down bread from heaven. Law one, the people shall go out and gather one day's portion every day. If you look down to verse 14, it happens just as God said it would. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And, And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. And then verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat, every person in your tent will need and Omer. So the first rule is not to gather all of it you can, nor is the first rule Americans gather all of it. The first rule is gather of it what you and yours can eat that day. First, gather daily. Second, live in community. Verse 17, and the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. In other words, they they didn't go out uh, with a way to measure, but went out with an idea of what they needed for their tent. Verse 18, but when they measured or meted it out or distributed it with an omer, so once they got the device out for measuring, whoever gathered too much had none left over, and whoever gathered little Had no lack. So, in other words, the story is clear. They gathered as individuals, but they distributed as a community. Law or Rule Three, it flows from one and two no leftovers, no holding over. Verse 19, a command let no one leave any of it over until morning. But, verse 20, not all listened. Some tried to save, and it bred worms and putrefied. Rule four, law four, gather daily every day except the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. So if you go back up to verse five, God told Moses in advance, look, on the sixth day when they prepare, literally when they appoint what they bring in. So there's two steps, a bringing in step and an appointing or distribution step. When they prepare or appoint what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So in other words, God says on Friday... They're going to go out looking uh, to gather a day's worth of manna, but when it's put together, I'm going to multiply it. I'm going to make it twice as much. Go to verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when the leaders, you know, so presumably those doing the distribution, when they figured it out, they went to Moses and they reported the problem. You see, they don't yet know that God's giving them two days of bread. They're thinking, If some people tried to keep some overnight and it went bad, what's going to happen? What will the mess be if there's an omer per person stinking to high heaven tomorrow? And then in verse 23, Moses tells them what God told him in verse 5. They didn't know yet. This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. Verse 26, six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. But, of course, some of them tried to get ahead and they tried to gather on the Sabbath anyway. And the Lord said to the people through Moses, how long will you, okay, so it's plural, it's it's God speaking to the people. How long will you all, so it's southern, how long will (laughs) y'all refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? They failed the test. Listen carefully. God did not say, you failed the test. You should have figured out what to do with the abundance on your own. He says, you failed the test. You did not obey my clear guidelines and laws about abundance that I gave you. So these are the laws, these are the rules that God gave in advance when he tested them with abundance. Gather daily, live in community, don't concern yourself with tomorrow's needs today, and Sabbath remain rest one day a week. Now, a rabbit trail from this test. Let's think about, for a few minutes, what's the big idea we're learning right now as we study through and journey through the book of Exodus? Is it not that the New Testament looks at the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites as a paradigm, picture, and pattern for our lives now as Christians in this age? And if that's the case... What does this text have to say about how we handle resources, possessions, money, in the context of abundance? To say it more plainly, to what extent do these four rules govern our lives now? Now, I have no idea what we're going to do with it, but here's what I think. And I, I begin to short circuit and I begin to shut down when I think about it. This is what I think. Exodus 16 should be the foundation of our framework for possessions and money today. Gather daily, live in community, don't save for tomorrow's needs today, Sabbath one day. So I'm just going to show you, uh, I'm going to show you why I think this is our framework. I'm going to show you Jesus' teaching. I'm going to show you Paul's teaching. I'm going to show you the New Testament church's behavior. And then right before we melt down, we're going to get off the rabbit trail. First, does the New Testament teach no leftovers, don't concern yourself with tomorrow's needs today, live a life where you need to seek daily for bread? Of course it does. Jesus, the hero, the important guy in the New Testament, God in the flesh, he teaches every bit of this in Matthew 6. So we have one sermon of Jesus recorded. Here are a few of of his points in that sermon: Sermon on the Mount. First, Lord's Prayer, verse eleven, chapter six: "Give us this day our daily bread." That prayer makes no sense if you have today's bread and tomorrow's bread in the bank. Next in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. So the footnote in uh, most English translations will tell you that as good a word for rust is, is worm. When you try to store up possessions, worms destroy it. Sound familiar? Jesus keeps teaching on money and the heart, and he concludes this way in Matthew 6. You cannot serve God and money. He uses the Semitic word mammon. It's second cousins to the word manna. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't store up. Prayerfully seek bread daily. And it seems obvious. I mean, the commentators would tell you it's almost certain Jesus has Exodus 16 in his mind while he's teaching. But it's absolutely certain Paul has Exodus 16 in mind when he teaches on money in 2 Corinthians. So we say, well, what do I do with my excess? If I can't save it, what do I do? Because James said, don't live a luxurious life. And, and Jesus says, don't store it up. So what am I to do? Well, just like Exodus 16, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that in the community of faith, one man's excess is there to balance out another man's lack The church in Jerusalem is going through a famine, and Paul in 2 Corinthians is raising money for them, and he says to the Corinthians in chapter 8, listen closely, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need as it is written. In other words, Paul says, I'm about to quote the Old Testament Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So the leader is saying, we gather individually and we disperse as a community. And I have no idea what to do with it, okay? I have no idea. I'm increasingly thinking, not doing. Let me be very clear. I am increasingly thinking that Exodus 16 is our framework for money as New Testament saints. And if the Corinthians were tempted to say, well, I don't want to bother anyone in the future. I don't want to be a burden. I'm going to save for myself in case I don't have income at some point. Paul, he he like, it's almost like he's thinking about Exodus 16, He assumes that in the future, the Corinthians' need will be met by the abundance of others. Because he says in the future, their abundance will supply your need that there may be fairness. Keep going on the rabbit trail. Did the New Testament church act this way? Acts 2. It's the beginning of the church. The church has just started. And all who believed were together and had all things in common they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And my mind is starting to turn to mush. My my brain short circuits when I begin to understand what the scriptures say. I shut down. I know you are too. Acts 4. So the church is growing It's multiplying. It says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need Many of us have tuned this out. Many of us have discredited this. Many of us have partitioned this off into another distant land and place, but I think we're wrong when we do that. What am I saying exactly? It seems to me, like some of the Israelites, most of us are failing the test on abundance. And I think it starts with this. We don't have a biblical framework for money in the New Testament. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But I can't think. I don't hope I'm wrong. I take that back. I repent. I could be wrong. But I can't think of a New Testament verse, teaching, or story That would assume our framework for money and possessions is anything other than Exodus 16, daily manna in the wilderness. If you read the New Testament, if you look at the teaching and the story, if you look at it, you will see that their framework was the wilderness. In 30 AD, Jesus says, No storing up money, pray for daily bread. In 33 AD, the church considered their possessions as ultimately belonging to the community of faith, and they brought their excess to the leaders for distribution. In 50 A.D., Paul says to rich people, you're in the wilderness too. Not just your home group, not just your church, not just your denomination. I got brothers and sisters across the Mediterranean Sea. That's like around the world to them. They need your excess. It's just fair, it's just just, and it is just right. And I don't know where we go from here. My mind shuts down. The gap between the New Testament church And the current American church is so huge, I don't know what to do. The gap is not just 2,000 years. It's not just a cultural gap. The gap between what they believed and did and what we believe and do is gargantuan. I have no idea what to do. If this is our framework, I don't know what we do with all the treasures that we have stored up. If this is our framework, I have no idea what to do in an individualistic culture that doesn't do interdependence. If this is our framework, I as a leader have no idea what I'm supposed to do in the global distribution of abundance. And so as soon as I take it from theory to application, I just raise the white flag and say I'm done. This is what I've chosen to do this morning, show you what I see, admit that I'm bewildered by what I see, and then get off the rabbit trail as fast as I can. It took us hundreds of years to get to where we are now, which is light years away from what the Bible describes, and it's going to take us more than one Sunday to get back home. And so I just want to tell you again what I told you several months ago when we were studying generosity in Philippians. I said the Bible, broadly speaking, teaches that there are three categories of people when it comes to money. First, me and my friends, selfish. Those who use their excess on their wants or save their excess for future needs and ignore the current needs of others. Second, there are the just and the fair. Those who give their excess towards meeting the needs of others. And third, there are the generous. Like Jesus, they forego meeting their own needs in order to meet the needs of others. And I would think every one of us has a lot of growing to do in regards to how we handle money, possessions, and abundance. And from what I can tell, considering how far we have to go, I think the wise step is to go back to our text and think about two things. What does the failure in the test reveal about us? And what is the result of failing the test? All right? So first, what does failing the test reveal? So go back to the story in Exodus 16. Regarding rules one and two, The text indicates that the people of Israel obeyed. They passed those portions of the test. They gathered daily, verse 17, and evidently they gathered individually and distributed as a community, verses five and verse 18. But what about rule three? What about no saving for tomorrow? Verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until the morning. Further, regarding rule four, rest and remain on the Sabbath. Verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. Now think, what does this disobedience reveal? And further, to what extent? To the extent that you and I are disobeying Jesus in Matthew 6 and Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, to the extent that we're in disobedience, what does that reveal about us? Remember, according to Deuteronomy 8, the point of the test was to reveal what was in the heart. What is revealed in the failure? Distrust. As people who had been slaves for so long... And as people who had just felt hunger pains in trying to save and in trying to get ahead on the Sabbath and clearly disobeying God, either either they thought that God didn't want what was best for them or they thought God didn't know what was best for them. Disobedience reveals distrust, a lack of trust in God's knowledge and in God's love. One commentator said it like this. You can take a person out of slavery in an instant, but it takes a lifetime to take slavery out of a person. You can take a person out of slavery in an instant, but it will take a lifetime to take slavery out of a person. In other words, the Israelites were still getting accustomed to having a loving, all-wise, all-powerful Lord and Master. Again, they didn't fail the test because they didn't put together a think tank or or a symposium on the wise thing to do with abundance. They failed the test because they didn't trust God to do what he clearly said to do with abundance. To the extent that the gap between us and the New Testament church is sin. To the extent that we're sinning in our savings and and in our workaholism. To that extent, we don't trust God Anxiety and distrust are revealed in the hearts of the disobedient to Jesus' teaching. We think either he doesn't love me or he doesn't know what's best for me. Silly Jesus. Really? Don't start. Tr- S- silly? You're, you have good intentions, Jesus. Good try. Just distrust. Jesus, in Matthew 6, after saying, prayerfully seek bread every day. And then, after saying, in order to put yourself in a place where you're going to have to seek bread every day, don't store up for tomorrow. After saying that, he says, he he knows our hearts. He knows our response before we even respond. The very next point in his sermon don't be anxious about things. Look at the birds. How they don't sow or reap, and God feeds them. Why be anxious about clothes? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you, of little faith? And he says, don't be anxious about things. He's like, Pharaoh is no longer your lord and master. He says this, your heavenly father knows that you need them. You can take, you can emancipate a person from slavery in an instant, but it will take a lifetime to take the slavery out of that person. Our failure in the test reveals distrust in a loving, all-wise, all-powerful heavenly Father. I've said it before, I will say it again. We tend to think about God's law this way. It's it's superfluous and random. We think that God had to come up with some rules uh, just because he had to come up with some rules to show us that we're sinners. We tend to think that the content of God's law doesn't matter as much just as long as there's a law. And further, we think God's law is punitive, that we have to obey laws that keep us from having fun since we messed up things so royally. But the Bible actually teaches rather consistently that God's laws lead to life, flourishing, and joy. God, in his laws and in his rules, is saying, Trust me, I I made you. I know what's best for you. I want what's best for you. This, of course, leads us to our final point: the results of failing the test. First, what did they get? What was the result when they disobeyed? Look at verse 20. But they did not listen. Some left part of it until the morning. And it bred worms and stank. Verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. What is Moses saying? He says, when we ignore God's law to try and get ahead, we ultimately fall behind. I mean, think about it. In order to save manna, what did they not do? Okay, in the text, they didn't eat a day's worth the day before. So follow the story. They gathered. It was distributed. Verse 18, everybody had exactly what they needed. And in this instance, in order to save more, they didn't consume what they needed that day. So they woke up with less energy, which is, that's that whole taking slavery out of a person thing. So they woke up with less energy than their neighbor. And not only did they need strength to go out and to gather yet again, but they had a wormy, putrefied problem on their hands. Think about the folks who rebelled and tried to get ahead by not resting on the Sabbath. They they found that it is pointless to work when God's not working. So instead of getting the rest they needed, they were frustrated by not finding any, and they were tired. God's laws are not superfluous, they are not random, and they are not punitive. They are life-giving. What did their distrust get them? Did they get ahead, or were they behind? Behind. Sometimes we will get ahead for a season when we disobey Jesus' teaching on money, let's say, but eventually we will lose. Eventually, we won't just be anxious about tomorrow. We'll be anxious about tomorrow and the money that we have to protect for tomorrow. Eventually, we won't find ourselves handling our money. We'll, ha- we'll find our, our money, money handling us. Eventually, we will see that if we handle possessions contrary to Jesus' teaching, we will be corroded, enslaved, and we will find ourselves behind, usually physically and relationally. Moses says in Deuteronomy 8, when thinking about the wilderness, when thinking about the manna for 40 years, he says, do you want to live and flourish in the promised land? He says, learn this. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's saying you don't simply need bread to live. You need God's rules for handling bread in order to live. How many times have I learned in my life, and have I learned from your lives as you sit in my office and we talk about it, how many times have we thought God's laws are punitive and superfluous and random and it's no big deal if I violate it? God's law is about money, sex, marriage, divorce, worship, reading the Bible, family. They're just sort of random. He's just trying to prove to us that we're sinners. How many times have we walked away from God's teaching as though it is irrelevant and it will keep us behind, and then time after time we find corruption and loss and frustration and slavery in our lives? God's like, that's the result of disobeying me. That's why I'm trying to tell you not to do it. But what's the other result that happened in failing the test? Or maybe it's better asked, ask, what, what didn't happen when they failed the test? What happened the next day? More bread from heaven. What didn't happen the next day? Expulsion. They did not flunk out of God's academy. When we hear the word test, it's biblical. It was in 1 Thessalonians this week in CBR. He loves to test. When we hear test, we think professor. We think principal. We think series 7, LSAT, bar exam, FCAT. Our mind goes to professor and principal. We think pass, fail. We think if you don't make the grade, you're out. But God's testing of his people is not about graduating and it is not about failing. It is about Growing. In the context of their grumbling, their grumbling is mentioned nine times. That is the action they do most often. Do you know what the action is that God does most frequently in the passage? Giving. They grumble, he gives. They grumble, he gives. They grumble, he gives them bread from heaven. They fail and disobey the second test, and God gives them more bread from heaven. Look, look at verse 31. Moses is like, okay, by the way, kind of looked like coriander, but it tasted like wafers made with honey. In their world, you could try and sweeten things by drying and crushing fruit or by finding honey. And Moses is saying you're going to want honey over dried fruit any day of the week. They sin. They grumble, they fail, they distrust. We sin, we grumble, we fail, we distrust, and God gives sweet daily bread. It says Moses got angry. It does not say God got angry. Moses develops an anger problem. We're going to figure that out. This is one of those places where Moses is angry and God is not. I do think there's some exasperation, though, in verses 28 and 29, look again at what God says. He says, Look, think. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain in your place. And verse 30, he's like, Oh. So the people rested on the seventh day. What brought about this growth? God tests, they fail. He lets them feel the corruption and the consequence of their failure. And then he gives them more teaching and the sweetest bread on earth. And then he says, trust me. Trust me. Last few sentences. We do not get expelled because Jesus was expelled for us. We don't flunk out because Jesus made straight A's and was flunked out in our place. God doesn't get mad at us in our rebellion because he got mad at Jesus on the cross. Even when our disobedience causes our death, we enter into ultimate life because Jesus experienced ultimate death for us on the cross. We don't have to figure out exactly what Exodus 16 means for us today in order to be saved because Jesus, who was galactically rich, became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And after an incredibly generous life, Jesus was crushed by God as if he was selfish and rebellious and willful because he switched places with us. Friends, We can trust this God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for, yet again, your grace so abundantly displayed in the Scriptures. We thank you yet again for this sight into reality. We thank you again for your illuminating work in our hearts to see this passage and to see clearly what we see and to just be honest about what we don't understand. We thank you that there's grace in you and in the gospel that we'll spend our lives trying to figure this out and obey. And all the while, the Father will be raining upon us, bread from heaven. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for how you don't demand us to obey to get in, but you have decided to let us in and then allow us to obey. And you have said that you'll get more obedience out of this way than the other. We praise you for your brilliance and your kindness. Jesus, we do beg you. We know that that the sins of our fathers and our own sins blind us in so many ways. Would you give us the courage to simply let your word speak when it speaks and then would you give us the humble faith to follow? We are not orphans. We have not been left on our own. You have given us life and you live within us and in between us by your Holy Spirit. We today more than any other day. Thank you for that. Would you lead us and guide us because we want freedom. We want you to be glorified. We want others brought into this community to experience this grace. In your name we pray.